0: The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Welcome everyone to the program. I'm your host, J.V. Johnson. Thanks for being here tonight. We're going to be talking about afterlife communication with Jonathan Zapp. Tonight, he will be our guest, and it's going to be an interesting discussion, as it always is. But whenever we start talking about communicating with those who have passed, every single person has someone that they've lost. Everybody has that. And every one of those people, well, I would say most of them anyway, wish they could communicate with that person or those people. And whenever we start talking about ways that you can do that, it offers hope. So that's what we're going to do tonight. Again, uh, Jonathan Zapp will be our Guest, As we get started in just a few minutes, a couple of things I wanted to mention, because, um, you know, we've we we've kind of come to the conclusion on this program through our discussions in chat or with uh, guests that have offered some expert opinion or just because I offered my opinion. That this whole coronavirus thing is overblown, I don't understand what's going on with the toilet paper, and I won't even pretend to understand why people are hoarding toilet- toilet paper. I don't know if it's so they can stuff it in their nose and you know you know how you get drippy when you have one, something like that. I don't know maybe I don't know what it is. But it does seem to be something that uh, we have a severe shortage of all of a sudden. (laughs) I never thought that would be possible, but we do. Our YouTube channel remains the place to go if you want to be part of our online community. See, I just did it again. Uh, It's uh, YouTube.com. Just look for J.V. Johnson when you get there. The name of the channel is actually J.V. Johnson's Beyond Paranormal. It's easy to find, though. And we have a great chat room when the show streams live. We also have uh, a lot of archived programs there. In fact, about 550 back episodes of the program are there, plus bonus content. So when you subscribe, uh, you know, you get notified of all of that stuff, especially if you click the notification icon. Then you get real-time notifications. And it's a great way to participate and, and be part of the online community. There's no fee or anything. It's a free subscription. Just click subscribe. Love to have you there. And also the podcast is available on all major podcast distribution platforms. Including Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Google Podcasts, uh, Spotify is a great place to get the program. Spotify is really um, committing to and investing in podcasts. You know they've been known for music for a long time, but now they're really putting an emphasis on podcasts. That shows you how popular podcasts are to begin with. But secondly, Spotify is is uh, is really upping upping its commitment to that. So you can find the. Uh, podcast there as well among other places it's almost everywhere so let's go to break and when we come back we'll bring our guest in we'll be talking tonight with jonathan jonathan zapp and we're talking about afterlife communication it's beyond reality we'll be right back please support the program go to patreon.com slash that's j-o-h-a-w Our topic tonight, afterlife communication, and our guest, Jonathan Zapp, is a paranormal researcher. He's also a philosopher. He is a journalist. He's a teacher. He's an author. He's written extensively on psychology and contemporary mythology. He's also the author of numerous published articles, essays, experimental works of fiction, and the Zapp Oracle. His most recent book is called Crossing the Event Horizon, Human Metamorphosis and the Singularity Archetype. Jonathan has a background in Jungian psychology, paranormal research, literature, writing, editing, and many other subjects, and he uses his eclectic background to take a multidisciplinary approach to understanding and writing about many subjects. Jonathan, welcome to Beyond Reality. It's great to have you.
1: Thank you very much.
0: So how long have you been up to this? Uh, you know, a lot of times uh, when people have these sensitivities, somewhere along their life, in their life, either something happens or there's an epiphany along the way that makes you recognize that you have these heightened sensitivities when did all that happen for you
1: um it started when i was two and a half years old when i had an experience that um seemed like um contact with ancestors and um later i would conclude it was the chief spokesperson was um a grandmother on my dad's side a woman who died during world war ii before i was born augusta zap and you know, it had some evidential aspects in that I was able to um, recite a couple of Hebrew prayers I apparently hadn't been exposed to before. But, you know, I, I, I approach paranormal phenomenon from the phenomenological point of view and the skeptical point of view, but most people misunderstand what skepticism is, where I don't arrive at fixed conclusions because when it comes to paranormal phenomenon, even when you can show beyond a shadow of a doubt that something paranormal has happened, it's almost impossible to say um, what paranormal thing happened. So let me unpack some of that. Um, So first of all, um, the idea of phenomenology is we experience, including in our waking and physical lives, phenomenon, but we never get to experience the noumena. And that is the case for, say, you looking around your studio right now, you look around your studio, you're seeing a phenomenon. You're not seeing what's actually there because ambient light from the overhead lights or whatever has to bounce off the topography of the microphone and the furniture or whatever. And now it's entering your eye, which is a simple convex lens. So the image is appearing upside down on the back of your retina. Also in the center of your retina is a pole where there are no photoreceptors Um, that's where the optic nerve comes in. Your brain will just fill in what it thinks should be in that missing hole, and your brain will also have to turn that image right side up through neurological processing. So it takes a significant fraction of a second for it to do all that. So what you are experiencing visually right now is a phenomenon that is very literally a neurological reconstruction of a past event. Because by the time your brain gets that image turned right-side up and everything, you know, it's a fraction of a second later. You're seeing what the studio looked like, you know, a fraction of a second before. So this idea of phenomenology, which goes back to Immanuel Kant, of of distinguishing between the phenomenon and the noumena, all we ever experience is the phenomenon. Now, when we get to paranormal stuff, um, separating, you know, determining what the nature of the phenomenon is becomes even more difficult. Because, let's say, for example, um, I believe I'm in touch with a deceased friend of mine, um, and that's actually the case of of what it seems like to me. I relate to it phenomenologically, which means I relate to the experience on its own terms, but I don't assume that I know for a fact, Um, because that, that just puts me in the case of a naive true believer, by the way, the skeptics, because people who call themselves skeptics, are usually debunkers. They're true believers in negatives. Okay, they believe, oh, there's no such thing as UFOs or ESP or whatever it is. That's the opposite of a skeptic. The skeptics were a group of Greek philosophers who believed, quite rightly, <clears throat> that their powers of observation and thinking would be diminished by arriving at conclusions. And we know that from modern cognitive science, like things like confirmation bias. So a skeptic is somebody who does not believe or disbelieve. They, they simply withhold from premature closure about what they believe. And that's what people should be doing about other phenomenon, like what's the nature of the physical world, because we keep learning that it's much stranger than we think. And right now, a lot of physicists are saying, you can go on YouTube and search for space-time-is-doomed. A lot of physicists are now saying that space-time are going to have to be discarded as illusory constructs of human consciousness or we'll never be able to reconcile relativity and quantum mechanics. So um, this is the way to approach the paranormal, um, and I've written a lot about this. People can watch a YouTube series I created called Skills for Rabbit Hole Navigation in Age of Metamorphosis. This is a way to approach the paranormal and go down rabbit holes without completely losing your grounding, which is what happens to people when they become true believers and want to convince you that, you know, they can prove this, that, or the other thing, and they're often just showing their their lack of sophistication in relating to paranormal phenomenon. So, for example, and um, feel free to break in at any moment, let's say my friend that I believe that I experienced as the surviving spirit of somebody I knew well in the waking life before his death Um, were to tell me, hey, since you're doubting my existence, I want you to pull out a quarter, toss it 12 times, and I predict it will land on tails 12 times in a row. So now let's say I perform that experiment, the coin lands on tails 12 times in a row. Did he successfully prove his existence? No. Almost certainly something paranormal has happened, because statistically the odds of getting 12 tails in a row are so low. However, that doesn't tell me what paranormal thing happened. Maybe my uh, desire, my wish fulfillment desire, plus a telekinetic ability that I might have, you know, without knowing it, manipulated the coins so that it would land on tails. Maybe I had short-term clairvoyance and knew that this was the exact right time to do a coin toss and get that result. There's something in paranormal research called decision augmentation theory. Or you may, because we have very strong evidence that a large percentage of people have short-term clairvoyance, you may sense when is the exact right time to do an experiment to get the desired results. There are so many other paranormal possible causes that cannot be ruled out that when something paranormal happens, we can almost never say definitively what paranormal thing happened. And we just have to have the humility and the maturity to tolerate that ambiguity. Um, but for some people, that's not fun enough or it's too <laughs> anxious because they want to say, well, just, I want to know definitely, you know, and stuff. That's when you become um, a rube and, and get lost in the, the, the carnival fun house mirror world of the paranormal, which is full of trickster aspects.
0: There, there are a lot of people that enter uh, a paranormal experience or a paranormal circumstance with a preconceived, maybe it's not a preconceived notion, but it's certainly a desired outcome. And, right, sure. And they walk into it, they have a desired outcome, and they're convinced they had that outcome. What's that?
1: Well, I mean, that's the classic placebo effect. Now, notice this isn't just people investigating paranormal things. This is also true for scientists. Right. Right. Often and and also for the pseudo-sceptic people like Michael Shermer, I once confronted him about this, you know, where they just assume that somehow because they have the job title scientist that they're just immune from human subjectivity. I mean, this is why we have to have double-blind studies and so forth because scientists often desire a certain outcome, and that's why it has to be peer-reviewed and it has to be reproducible because you know if you work for a pharmaceutical company that wants the drug to be proven effective or whatever and, and you know, your job promotion may, may suffer if you come up with a negative result, you've got a strong prejudicial factor. So, therefore, we want to have a, a carefully controlled double or triple blind study and we want, it, we want it to sh- somebody, an independent lab to verify that. And that kind of thing. So, science has some safeguards, even though it often breaks down, and scientists don't act scientifically in some cases and have very unscientific prejudices against the paranormal. But this is something that everybody who knows anything knows is just a huge factor in human nature, like confirmation bias and so forth, that has to be um, taken into account, or you're just a fool. Lost in a slippery labyrinth full of tricksters, <clears throat> because you you the desire to believe something will get uh, will alter the results. I mean, that's what the whole placebo effect. I mean there's, there's hardly a medicine out there that's more than five percent stronger than a placebo in its effectiveness, um, because the de- desire to see a certain thing is going to to skew things. And I warn people about this constantly, that just because you had a synchronicity doesn't mean that you're going to be able to correctly interpret the synchronicity. Let's say, for example, I'm romantically obsessed with Jane, and she's all I think about. So now I'm going to tend to have synchronicities that will play a trickster role with that obsession. I'm going to get in the car and the first song will be a love song about a woman named Jane and this kind of thing. And I'll be like, ah, you see, you know, that proves that she's into me or whatever. Now, <laughs> synchronicities can play a completely trickster role and make you, and this this happens to conspiracy theorists all the time. And right now, there's probably a couple of high school kids playing, you know, vinyl records backwards and Doing bong hits and Aleister Crowley books are falling off the bookshelf. And paranormal things may be happening, but they may be getting led down a very slippery rabbit hole where they're going to be completely deceived about what's actually going on because they're not approaching it in the appropriately skeptical manner.
0: Tell us about your friend. You referenced your relationship with your friend on the other side just a few moments ago. Tell us about that.
1: Okay. Well, um, many, many different things, even before he passed on, indicated that something paranormal was going on. So, uh, for example, <clears throat> on March 4th of 2006, I wrote this little rant that was kind of a play on the, the pun of March 4th, F-O-R-T-H, exclamation mark, and the date March 4th, F-O-U-R-T-H. Hmm. Um, and So it was called a March 4th. Mutant Manifesto, written on March 4th of 2006, and it, it just was maybe a page and a half long, and it said stuff like, you know, cast off your wage slave bondage, and March 4th mutants, you know, and, and, and this kind of thing. So on March 4th of 2008, two years later, an extremely brilliant young man um, uh, suddenly had what he described as a nervous breakdown, quit his job at a tax office, and marched forth. On March fourth, two years, he knew nothing about me or that this thing obscure document I had written, and he arrived in my hometown of Boulder um, after taking a bus, you know, to anywhere uh, out of town. And within thirty minutes of meeting him, um, we discovered that we were both haunted by trying to write the same fantasy story with the same essential plot. It's basically like an elf origin story, and with like many of the same elements. I mean, the similarity was just so, un- was just absolutely uncanny. Wow. And then there were also all these incredible telepathic moments, and even some things possibly related to reincarnation. Like, you know, um, um, he looked remarkably like a deceased cousin of mine who also died by suicide and who committed suicide in 1989, the same year that my new friend was born. And they look remarkably similar, and with similar personalities. And you know, the the to tell the story properly would be like ten thousand pages, which is written on my you know Google Drive and stuff. But like a lot of it's too personal to share. But um, um, there are so many um, layer upon layer of, of things. When I go through a giant email archive and a giant archive of his handwritten documents, and also like the, the, the poems, he was a visionary, brilliant poem, would poet probably the best of his generation, you know, especially if he had lived. Um, there is so much transtemporal mapping of, of a cycle of reincarnations that always end with young uh, with suicide, and that's known by some people who have contact with the other side. that's sort of a known phenomenon however subjective that material might be. And um, there was so, we had so many dreams and occurrences that that so clearly, I was just talking to my friend Gabriel who's a renowned paranormal philosopher and investigator. You know, the, the amount of material, talking about it to him today, I mean, the amount of material that I could show him from before the death, w- w- it was just amazing. I mean, it was hard to consider it like you know reading between the lines or something like that mm-hmm. so um, you know that's not the only there there really been two principal ongoing um, interdimensional relationships I don't actually say after-death relationships because that would sort of presume a conclusion right and so even with all the evidence and even with daily paranormal things going on I have to consider other possibilities like for example if you know somebody well enough, you have a kind of holographic memory of them. Like if I said, you know, assuming you're not an orphan or something, if I said, you know, imagine, you know, you're having a conversation with one of your parents and like, I want you to write down like what they would respond to this question or something, you know, you would, you would be able to convey their laugh, their sense of humor. You have such complete knowledge. And the human psyche is capable of sustaining more than one personality. We see that in the rare cases of multiple personality disorder, which now they call dissociative identity disorder. Um, we, fiction writers experience this, where they and I've experienced this, fiction writing, where you create a character that takes on a life of their own and may do things you didn't expect and that weren't convenient to the plot of the story. And there's a whole movement um, of growing popularity online and stuff of people making tulpas, which is an ancient concept. It's, I think it's a Hindu word that means mind-made body. And the Jewish tradition, they talked about golems and dibbcks, where you create out of your imagination and out of like creating a highly detailed story, um, you you create an autonomous being. So there's a lot of very mysterious stuff about um, seemingly non-physical beings that we don't fully understand, but but there may even be physical evidence, like for example. People who have true um, multiple personality disorder under functional MRI scans, when different um, of these personalities take over, um, the functional MRI scan may tr- change dramatically. Um, also, you know, what we call non-physical persons is, again, sort of being na- naively assuming, assuming that we're like, you know, um, that the, the noumena and the phenomenon are the same. So, like, let's take us for example. Um, you know, we we consider ourselves to be perfectly real, but um, actually, when you get into the physics of it, um, what are we made out of? Atoms. Well, what are the atoms made out of? Subatomic particles. Well, those aren't the little billiard balls that I saw in my high school physics book at the Bronx High School of Science. Right. Um, and they're, they're like probability waves. That you. It's mostly just empty space. In fact, if you took all the empty space out of all the Atoms, out of all the 7 billion supposedly physical human beings on the planet, we'd all fit into one sugar cube. So people who are one billionth of a sugar cube, just like they say people in glass houses shouldn't throw stones, people who are one billionth of a sugar cube, if we're even that, should be careful who we call non-physical. Because the, the non-physical entities are not necessarily non-physical, they're just not physical in the same way, as we are. It may be at a different frequency or this kind of thing. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> so, uh, another thing is that people confuse is they're way too sure and arrogant about what's real and what's not real. So, for example, a child has an imaginary friend, and a parent who will think that that's dangerous or something will say, Oh, but they're not real. <clears throat> well, that's wrong. Um, an imaginary friend is real. For example, if I ask the people in your audience right now to think of a pink elephant, and let's say that, you know, 20% of them do, now, the fact that um, those people thought of a pink elephant at 934 Mountain Standard Time, you know, on, on this particular date, that's a factual actuality. Mm-hmm. They, they thought of that pink elephant and not a blue Toyota 4Runner, Right the history of the unfolding of the universe must include the fact that they thought of a pink elephant at that moment, or it'd be wrong or incomplete. So it is a factual actuality. This is what Jung called his great discovery, was that the contents of the psyche are real. You know, if I dream, have a dream with a particular narrative, it's a factual actuality. I had that dream. And what is, you know, and, and, and what is the experience in the physical world made out of Patterned energy, information, like we're not even sure. It may just be congealed consciousness. It's the stuff that dreams are made of. So anything that exists is real. But materialists, extroverted materialists, will say like if it happens in your imagination, then it's just a nothing. But it's not a nothing. These are factual actualities.
0: I want to go back to something that you said here because it's a really important point and it relates to so many of the other discussions that we've had on this program and you broke it down really well. You were talking about each individual being made up of atoms and those atoms being subatomic made up of subatomic particles and those particles being very tiny. And really the bulk of the atom is just space or some type of energy. Do we have a sense of what that energy is and can that be tied to our spirituality?
1: Ultimately, it very well may, but but right now, physics in, is in a state of bewilderment. Right, I mean we don't we don't have that theory of everything that we keep looking for. Right, um, it, we we have a whole series of mind blowing paradoxes, where where now um, you know physicists are admitting that that consciousness has to be seen as a fundamental force of the universe, because you know like the whole wavical paradox, where a photon is a particle or a wave, depending on what you expect it to be. So this is why an MIT physicist wrote a a book recently. He'd be a very good guest if you can get him. Um, He wrote a book called The Case Against Reality, where um, uh, with real science and with math, even, they're showing that evolution does not favor our perceiving reality. And, and he, they've even, even showed very elegantly mathematically why that's so. It, it, what it favors is our ability to perceive fit, what, what he calls fitness rewards or fitness payoffs. You need to be able to, like, distinguish the banana from the rest of the tree. You need to be able to find a mate to pass on your genes. But, you, but it is not an evolutionary advantage to perceive reality, quote-unquote, um, you know, if you were to, if, you were, if the monkey saw every subatomic particle, it would be in such a state of bewilderment, it would never survive. What we see more is like a desktop, like a computer desktop, where we're seeing icons of fitness payoffs. Oh, there's the fruit, I'm going to reach for that. There's the mate, I'm going to reach for that. Um, but these are more like abstract representations. And, um, and space-time itself... Um, he believes, is a construct of consciousness that's created just like your your desktop is created to allow you um, to usefully navigate the content in your computer. So, for example, um, if I see a folder on my desktop, um, there's no real folder, quote-unquote. That's a, a, a set of pixels that are lit up to create an icon to represent something, a noumena, some actual content that's on a computer chip inside the machine. If I were to see the reality, I wouldn't see the folder on my desktop. I'd see a series of tiny voltage differences, which would make my computer useless. I, w- I would just be lost in a bunch of like, you know, zeros and ones, and I, and I, I wouldn't be able to navigate what's on my computer. Um, instead, I perceive a world of icons like this folder, that, um, you know, that allows me to manipulate that world, that matrix, okay? And, and that's what, that's what we perceive in the physical world. If you were really seeing what's there, you'd just be seeing mostly space. You'd be looking right through everybody. But it's much more useful, and even from an evolutionary point of view, and even in a way that can be mathematically demonstrated, apparently, for you to see these symbolic representations just like seeing a, a computer-generated character or another avatar of another player when you're in the world of World of Warcraft or something like that.
0: I mean, this these concepts and these ideas change everything. And if we can if we can start to think of things in terms of those ideas, we can open up our minds and our proverbial eyes to uh, to some of these paranormal phenomena that we've long. Uh, question, but haven't been able to come up with any explanations because it starts to explain a lot of things. We have to go to break here in just a minute, but I want to ask you something. You you said you had, I think, uh, when I asked you about your friend, you had two such relationships, and I know you offered a lot of uh, ideas as to how those relationships could uh, be explained. But what is your thought? Are, do you believe these are spiritually within yourself, from your perspective, or do you believe you are reaching out? across some veil, whatever that veil is, into a realm that exists beyond our physical life, for those relationships?
1: <clears throat> my, my, my felt experience, I'm going to choose my words very carefully, my felt experience is of my friend, and that it's him, and that it's, there's, there's continuity with who he was in the past. However, I make no claim on an intellectual or scientific level of um, a conclusive rea- level of reality, so so in other words, we have I have like heart gnosis of like what my heart tells me is true, but I compartmentalize that from like my intellect in order n- not to be a true believing um, intellectual malpractice, um, overly credulous person that um, is no longer able to intelligently um, inquire, into mysterious phenomenon
0: swing by facebook and give my page a like it's jvj paranormal also find beyond reality radio give that a like as well follow both of those pages we often update you on uh, various paranormal topics plus uh, guests that will be on the show all sorts of great information there it's a great community to be part of speaking of guests tonight we're talking with jonathan Zapp. jonathan is a paranormal researcher and a philosopher and much much more his website is zap We're talking about his book, Crossing the Event Horizon, Human Metamorphosis and the Singular Archetype. Uh, Jonathan, what is the afterlife revolution? You've talked about that.
1: Um, Sure. Well, um, and and by the way, that phrase is also the name of an excellent uh, book by Whitley Strieber. Um, But I was using the same phrase in my journals, like in the weeks before his book came out, because we were having similar experiences. You know, he was communicating with his deceased wife, Anne, and um, I was having my own seemingly afterlife communications. <clears throat> so really the afterlife revolution, I believe, began in 1848 in upstate New York. That's when the Fox sisters began the, the, the modern spiritualist movement um, with table tapping and with seances and, and so forth. And it, And, you know, they were controversial, you know, one of the sisters later claimed that they were hoaxing. Right. The other sisters disagreed. But at the same time that that started, spread like wildfire through not just this country but Europe, um, hey, there was a parallel uh, synergistic revolution going on um, with, communicate, with technology. Um, <clears throat> right around the same time, telegraphy was being invented, um, our first long-distance electronic communication medium. And it's interesting because, according to the mediums that started, you know, the spiritualist movement with the table tapping and so forth, they said that they claimed that that was invented by Benjamin Franklin on the other side, and it seems so similar to Morse code, which was being invented by living technologists who were creating the telegraph. And when it was proposed before the U.S. Congress to spend I think it was twenty or thirty thousand dollars to have a, a telegraph system. This would have been like in the, right around the same time that the Fox sisters got started. Mm-hmm. Um, it was highly controversial. There were ministers saying that this was the you know the tool of witchcraft and stuff like that. Um, and it, it was in a very unusual vote. Um, there were a tremendous number of abstentions. People that didn't want to be on the record for it or against it. It narrowly won to make this you know modest investment in a telegraph system. But um, flash forward, you know, just 15 years later, you know, to the Lincoln presidency, and now we see these two new revolutions converge in the Lincoln White House because Lincoln was so um, into um, telegraphy that he would often, during the Civil War, sleep in the telegraph office that was across from the White House, reading telegrams not specifically addressed to him, and writing, sending, uh, you know, Ulysses S. Grant long, eloquent letters through telegrams to, like, you know, raise his morale and this kind of thing. Um, At the same time, seances, the spiritualist movement was happening in the White House because um, Abraham and Mary Todd Lincoln lost their beloved son. I can't think of his name, but he was only... I think it was uh, Robert. I think so. Yeah, Robert. And um, they were absolutely traumatized. And of course, you know, Lincoln had a tendency toward depression and despair, even before that. And so um, Mary Todd was openly inviting mediums into the White House, and seances were being conducted. We are not clear how much Abraham participated. He might not have wanted that to be known. But we also have in the Lincoln president the, the most dramatically and unquestionably verifiable paranormal experience where um, it's completely documented, nobody questions it, where, where Lincoln had such detailed premonitions about his own death, his own assassination and, and death. Um, and so we saw these two um, forms of, of evolution, a um, a modern, um, and by modern, I mean 19th century, you know, we, we uh, 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 revolution in interest in the afterlife and contacting spirits. Of course, this goes way back to, you know, time immemorial in every culture, but it was a huge, suddenly it was a hugely prominent thing happening at the same time when other, you know, uh, countervailing trends of more interest in science and rationality and so forth um, were, were happening. And then we see technology and interest in the afterlife explode again. The spiritualist movement never went away. It just became somewhat less prominent. Um, And there was a lot of, you know, a lot of it was very scientific with the Society of Psychical Research and so forth, and figures like William James and scientists like William Crook and stuff like that. But um, then um, in the 1970s, it was 677, I think, when Raymond Moody wrote Life After Life, and that began the... um, revolutionary discovery of the field of near-death experience research that's um, just been exploding. I mean, I've, uh, you know, I've been to IONS International, you know, spoken at IANS conferences, the International Association of Near-Death Experiences, and right. these are huge conferences with people from all around the world. And scientific papers, like my friend Dr. Pim Van Lommel, who's a Dutch cardiologist, you know, his prospective studies of NDEs have appeared in the prestigious medical journal The Lancet, um, and, but at the same time that this field was exploding, interest in, in, in scientific study of near-death experience, resuscitation technology, even just in the last few years, has also exploded. So that now um, they, they say if the Titanic disaster happened today, they could send rescue boats in hours later, pull most of those people out of the frozen waters where they'd still be pretty well preserved and restart most of them. So now we we have people able to provide, not only do we have more people on the planet, but we have people able to provide testimony of a sort that would only very rarely be available in the past because we're able to bring people back from full-on clinical death. And many of them will come back with, with able to report, you know, of these extraordinary experiences that absolutely, and, and, and you know my skeptical approach, I don't arrive at conclusions very lightly, but really as strong as any evidence we have of anything, completely defeat neurological materialism where people who have... You know, like in the Pam Reynolds case where people have their eyes taped shut and, you know, she didn't even have blood in her brain anymore. They were pumping plasma into her brain to to operate on an embolism deep in her brainstem and are able to report um, specific exotic machinery in the surgery room where their eyes are taped closed and things that people were saying and, and, and come back with all these extraordinary experiences a pseudo-skeptic that's really a debunker will say, oh, it's just an oxygen-starved brain. Right, right. So notice they start with a conclusion based on no evidence, and an oxygen-starved brain, if you talk to somebody that really understands neuroscience, doesn't lead, create these complex memories, you know, and this kind of thing. <clears throat> you know, there are so many um, aspects of death studies that completely defeat neurological materialism, like the well-reported, a phenomenon that hospice workers often report. It goes by some different terms. But probably one I like best is terminal lucidity, where somebody who may have profound Alzheimer's or profound brain damage just before they die, when their brain is in the worst shape it's ever been in, will suddenly become completely lucid. Neurological materialism, which is the assumption that consciousness is somehow created as a epiphenomenon of biochemical process in the brain has absolutely no way of explaining that in fact it completely defeats neurological materialism um so so this this is the afterlife revolution and it's an evolutionary revolution because you know if you think about evolutionary biologists will talk about marsupials like kangaroos they have a limited ability to evolve higher consciousness because they lack the corpus callosum allowing the left and right hemispheres of their brain to communicate well. Well, we have like a missing corpus callosum too. We, we have very um, spotty and, um, ep, you know, episodic communication with those on the other side. You know, some people estimate there are 70 billion of us who have died, and there are 7 billion people who are alive. If we had access, if we had a greater ability to communicate with that whole other hemisphere, so to speak, of human existence. Think of how much more conscious we could be because people who come back from near-death experiences come back greatly changed. And this is what Dr. Van Lommel was able to establish in his prospective studies that were published in The Lancet. Um, The control group were people in the same seven Dutch hospitals who had cardiac arrest, but no NDE. And these two groups, continued to diverge years after the event. <clears throat> the people who had the NDEs reported becoming much more spiritual, but their church attendance went down because they realized that what institutional religion was telling was not what the, the truth of the spiritual experience they had. Just the opposite, the cardiac arrest group, their church attendance went up, but their reported spirituality went down. The people who had the NDEs, you know, um, uh, commonly reported certain paranormal effects like destabilizing computers and sensitive electronic equipment, very widely and consistently reported. Um, but also their sense of the significance of life and uh, you know went way up, and their fear of death went way down um, <clears throat> because they had experienced that death is an illusion. It's something that happens to bodies. Not to consciousness, because consciousness is not in a body that's just um, you know a, a, a naive materialist illusion, and I kind of knew this already because I had many since I was a child' spontaneous out of body experiences, and what i and once I had a certain number of them, any fear of death completely vanished because I knew that I was more alive, separate from my body than I was when i'm much more closely associated and immersed in it like I am right now. So um, <clears throat> I think that there is a revolution that is is happening with afterlife studies, and I think at any moment it could really explode. And, and here's one of the things that could be a, a tremendous trigger that might be sitting on your shelf um, right now. Uh, like I have an Oculus Rift in a case under my desk right now. I think that with off-the-shelf VR hardware, like my Oculus Rift, and the right software that we could, for a very large number of people, create an out-of-body experience on demand. (laughs) Um, You know, I'm not a technologist, but this is a strong... They've been using VR equipment to help people with phantom limb pain. You know, they they can create an avatar, but that is like subtly displaced or like timed a couple of seconds off from your physical body and it can it sort of displaces your proprioceptive sense of like well who am i am i my physical body or am i this avatar and so i have a very strong hunch and i've talked to some technologists who seem to agree with me that um <clears throat> if somebody you know with the right writing the you know right software could take off the shelf hardware and use things like the Oculus Rift to create out of body experiences on demand and that would create a profound revolutionary change in human consciousness and um, allow all kinds of things because uh, many out-of-body pioneering researchers, people like Robert Monroe, were able to learn a whole lot about what's on the other side um, through traveling out of their own bodies. So we may be on the verge of that kind of a, a massive breakthrough.
0: Well, you know, we've had a lot of folks on this program who have sensitivities that they would uh, call psychic sensitivities. And frequently their story begins with some type of either near-death or out-of-body experience. And they come back from that, and they, bec- they come back very much changed. And, and it opens up a whole uh, universe or, or spiritual realm, maybe, to them. But do you have a sense, or does anybody have a sense of what happens during that process that may open that door? It's almost like a switch goes off or on.
1: Yeah, well, one way of one way of describing it, and and by the way, my work on the singularity archetype, which is a whole other story, um, you know, this is an archetype that relates to the two parallel event horizons of individual death and a species eschaton, a human evolutionary, species wide, quantum evolutionary event, um, and um, what what happens is that. People have certain experiences, and this could be triggered through an hallucinogen, through wilderness isolation, fasting, meditation, other means, but it could also be an NDE or an OBE. And what they experience is a transcendent function. That um, This is like what we explained, terminal lucidity, that we have one type of consciousness when we're closely associated with our meat body, and, and that one is very sensitive to things like blood chemistry, you know, that, that's, that's the, the, the type of consciousness or mode where, you know, if I drink a cup of coffee, I feel more alert and this kind of thing. Um, but then in a state when my body could be devastatingly damaged or my heart could have stopped and there's no blood flowing into my brain, where now a transcendent function kicks in and now I'm capable of like a super processing where I'm not so tightly bound to the limited awareness, the phenomenon that my meat body perceives, it's limited fitness payoff, you know, desktop icons, and now can kind of like see past the desktop, step through the veil, and see more of the noumena, more um, beyond the, the, the flatland of phenomena, um that I normally perceive when I'm closely associated with my meat body and need to perceive when I'm driving on the highway or, you know, doing my taxes and things like that. So there are many different ways that people get there, often with some change to their physical body or displacement from their physical body, or it could be an illness, or you know, this is why all these rites of initiation may involve ordeal poisons or fasting or going out into the desert. Some kind of shock to the physical the equilibrium of the physical body is often part of it, but it doesn't have to be. Um, and then you, uh, this transcendent function clicks in, and suddenly you have access to like an additional dimension or two, and can lift up from, like, the flatland of the mundane world and see all this other, um, mm, much more of the noumena than you're used to seeing.
0: Can everyone contact the other side in some fashion? Is that a a skill or a sensitivity that everyone possesses?
1: Well, I'm an anti-absolutist. My philosophy is called dynamic paradoxicalism, the anti-ism-ism. So I would never, anytime... Somebody says, everyone or no one, I'm always going to resist that. Um, What I would say is that it's part of the human performance envelope. Um, It's just like, can everyone run a four-minute mile? No. But um, once Roger Bannister ran the first four-minute mile, suddenly people all over the world were running four-minute miles. We discovered, okay, that's part of the human performance envelope, and now a really good high school runner can run a four-minute mile. So, um, it, it, or like William James said, all that's necessary to disprove the notion that all crows are black is one white crow. If we have one mother who, remote from any sensory information, knows specifically how her child is in trouble a thousand miles away or whatever, then that blow, blows open remote viewing as part of the human performance envelope, you know, for the whole species. But not every individual in a species can write symphonies or run four-minute miles or, or, you know, this kind of thing. But we know there have been scientific polls like, you know, um, Gallup polls or something um, of of Americans where where a a very high percentage, like maybe 85%, will say that they had some experience that felt like contact from a deceased loved one. Often it'll be in the form of a dream. Typically, it's something that happens shortly after the person has passed, and it seems on a on a, a level of an unquestionable level of reality, um, but they don't usually continue that relationship or communication like I've done with my friend. But um, many of these um, experiences of contact um, are powerfully evidential. Like there's a certain class of them called Pekinarian experiences, and what those are is like in a typical one. Um, a young boy comes down to you know have breakfast with his parents and says, um, oh, "I just saw johnny he was he was standing in my room and was glowing with light and said i 'm going to be okay tell everybody I love them and i 'm going to be okay and they 're like, What are you talking about oh, johnny 's in college you know he 's not going to be home for another two weeks and then the phone rings, and it 's a state trooper calling up to tell them that like you know an hour ago their son Johnny, the college student, was killed in a car accident. Mm. So, in a Pekinjarian experience, somebody who had no way of possibly knowing through any ordinary means that someone had passed because they're like young, they're healthy, they weren't expected to die or anything, will um, <clears throat> become aware or get a visit from that person that um, indicates that they are no longer in a physical body, um, and uh, that's a that's a powerful form of of evidence. <clears throat> so, contact um, with a deceased person is a relatively common theme thing um, in in many people's lives, but often they may have a single instance of that and and the communication doesn't continue and, but in other cases, there are many cases where it does. And sometimes, like, there was a woman whose husband was, like, a tax accountant, and he came back and communicated to her. And a lot of it was very mundane stuff, like, you know, I want you to write down these passwords. I want you to take the money from this IRA and put it in this account. And so, like, for just a few days after his passing, um, she had all this communication with him, but it was mostly about, like, bookkeeping and stuff like that. But in some cases, it's highly evidential. Like, for example, um, after Dante, um, the Italian writer, died, um, he he came back and and told his son, listen, I want you to go up to the attic and, like, the third floor board from, like, the back right corner of the attic, I want you to pry that up. There's a a manuscript I left in there. And then he does, and there's the manuscript. Uh, And people have had that, you know, somebody will come back and tell them about where they... um, hid money in coffee jars buried in the basement and things like that. You know, there'll often be this um, veridical evidence of a kind. Um, now, from my, you know, um, perspective on paranormal phenomenon, it's not absolutely conclusive because you can have these super psi explanations where maybe, you know, the, the living person um, access the akashic record access some field of information and it came through what seemed like a deceased relative um and you can't discount that kind of thing but but i would also encourage them to go with their felt experience if it felt like you know your parent coming back and there are a lot of classic um attributes um like for example one of the ways that they'll become aware that a deceased relative like a parent has come back is they'll Suddenly, um, smell their mom's perfume, or their dad's aftershave, in an environment like a rental car where there was no possibility of any remnant of that scent, you know, through any ordinary way, you know, being present. Um, when people visit, um, they, they they may be in a very poor or aged physical and or aged physical state when they passed, but when they come back, they they seem to be on average 25 years old they'll, they'll be a younger healthier vibrant version of themselves because they're no longer subject to the you know entropy of a meat body and this kind of thing so there's a lot of commonality in these kind of experiences
0: you um reminded me of a story my mother used to tell often not just to me but you know anytime the conversation about ghosts or whatever it happens to be would come up she would tell this story to whoever was listening and she talked about being a little girl and her grandmother her, her mother's mother, no, her father's mother, um, came to her in a dream. Now, her, the, the grandmother was still alive, but came to her in a dream. And they were at a train station on a train platform, and the grandmother said, I have to go, I'm, I have to go. And my mother would say to her, I want, don't go, I want to go with you. And the grandmother would say, no, it's not your time. So my mother woke up from the dream, told my grandfather, her father, about it. And uh, it just so happened that... Um, that grandmother passed away that night, and my mother had no idea, um, but had that dream and is convinced that was some type of spirit communication or or afterlife communication. What do you think about something like that? And what do you think about the dream mechanism for communication?
1: Well, I think it's it, it's one of the, the the classic and most powerful um, ways that that communication can happen. And what's interesting is, if I understand your story correctly, um, it seemed like that the dream. Happened before her actual death event. Yes. Yeah, right. So um, one of the things that that tells you is something that we know about dreams. and Everybody who's studied dreams has observed this, like both Freud and Jung, and, but many, anybody that seriously investigated dreams is that they're, they're trans-temporal. You know, um, you know, I have this thing about, I wrote something called a guide to the Replexed interdimensional traveler because we're all interdimensional travelers and it's built into our biology. You know, we can't go 72 hours without entering another matrix, another dimension called the dream time, where the laws of physics are different. You're not bound by gravity. and That's why flying in dreams is so common. Why wouldn't you want to fly if you're no right. longer bound by gravity? <laughs> right. um, and also time is different. And this is what also those on the other side say is, you know, that they have a very different experience of time. There's a wonderful book about this um, called The Unobstructed Universe. It's a whole other story. but um, um, So in your dreams, you're in a transtemporal matrix, just like in a dream I may be in um, you know, uh, my parents' house that we lived in when I was two years old or something like that. Um, and it, I might be a different age. Like I had a dream three days ago where I was a college student. So um, dreams are, are, are transtemporal, and that's why they're so often clairvoyant. Because when you are no longer bound to a meat body, you're less connected to linear time and um, past, present, and future may all be simultaneously um, apparent. That's why in near-death experiences, not only is there sometimes a life review, but um, there's also, it's a rarer thing, that people will experience a flash forward where they may be shown future events in their lives that are then later confirmed. So um, uh, this dream, in a very poetic and really classic way, I mean, if it was in a, a movie, you would almost say it was like a, a, a cliché, you know, the idea of the train station and right. leaving, and you have to stay. I mean, it's as classic as it gets, but we can't doubt her sincerity in reporting it. And, um, but it shows you that the, the clairvoyant and transtemporal aspect of dreams, that this probably is a message from her grandmother, who may not have herself, as her conscious ego, even known that she was going to die that evening. But the self, what Jung called the self, which is sort of the totality of all the psychic structures, is transtemporal. The ego is time-bound. So to the ego, death or the evolutionary quantum change you know, um, that the singularity archetype maps out is viewed as emergency or apocalypse. But what is emergency to the ego is maybe seen as an emergence or a quantum transcendent evolutionary event to the self. So the, the, the self is able to um, emerge in the dream time and be aware of far more layers of things than the conscious ego can. And that's why dreams are often so incredibly revealing of more than our conscious ego um, is aware
0: Are tools helpful in an effort to to communicate with someone who has passed? And I say tools like a spirit board or a Ouija board, or even a medium for that matter.
1: Well, um, here's the tool that I use. Now, both Ouija boards and mediums have a very mixed reputation at best. Um, I've had a paranormal experience with the Ouija board that was a little bit disturbing, and there are a lot of reports of people getting into big trouble with Ouija boards because there can be a lot of trickster spirits that are aware of that as a window. Mediums, um, uh, there are some well documented cases of real mediums. I think most are um, poor quality, <laughs> let's say at least. Whether they're consciously charlatans, which some of them are, it's just like every time I, you know, like on. Coast to Coast AM or one of the big radio shows, I'll hear some famous medium come on right. and they'll tell their story and it sounds so authentic and everything and they sound so believable and, and they probably did have authentic experiences, but then they'll go to open lines and they start doing their shtick and it's just like the worst kind of cold reading. Yeah. That like only a fool would give any credit. But I see an older man who has a watch like, <laughs> whose grandfather doesn't wear a watch. Like, right. And it's just like such an amateur cold reading. I feel like I could do a better one. So so these are tools, but um, you have to be really careful how you use those tools because the Ouija board has has a bad, dark reputation, and so many mediums are frauds or conscious or unconscious. Here's the tool that I use, writing. I find that it really um, free-writing like you, you open a journal now, um, it's easier for me, I'm a writer, but if you just start writing and even and it, it, write nonsense, Raymond Moody's most recent book, it just came out uh, like last month or something when I was out in the desert, you know, on like a vision quest, you know, and suddenly I was able to download the, the book. Um, if you just start free writing, even if you're writing nonsense and just keep your fingers moving on the keyboard and say like, okay, I'm just going to pretend to have a conversation with a deceased friend and just make it up. You know, like William James would say, you know, act as if. And you just kind of get that process going, then they can step into that role and start communicating. So the way it works for me is I don't even meditate, you know, and and hallucinogens and stuff like don't have any beneficial effect on me anymore as far as expanding intuition or vision at all. I can wake up feeling like a late middle aged wreck feeling like, oh, my God, I'm just aches and pains, I'm all washed up, I'm not going to contact anything. Pretty much as soon as I turn on the computer and um, start writing, then I'm just sucked right into a rabbit hole and, like, stuff starts to happen and, like, something is waiting for me, like the well it never seems to be dry. So um, it, it, it depends on the individual, but the tool that works best for me is writing because that it, it makes it less ambiguous. Um, because you can write down what the um, seemingly disembodied entity is saying and make it more definite, but there's a whole lot of different tools. Raymond Moody likes the psychomantium, which you can look up online and how, how to build that involves like a mirror and a candle and some optical effects. I have, you know, I write in my study that is a very surreal environment with like. It's dark with colored lights and so forth. So having the right kind of set and setting and so forth. I mean, obviously, if you're in a socially dense, distracting environment, it's going to be a hell of a lot harder to open contact. So sometimes it's just about showing up. Like when people have these spontaneous contacts with a a deceased relative, it's often when they're driving in their car. Because you're kind of in a meditative state when you're like driving on the highway and, you know, you can kind of do it on autopilot. You're, you're socially isolated in the car. It's kind of a rhythmic experience. And um, <clears throat> that's often like when they'll, they'll suddenly smell their mom's perfume and, you know, um, hear her voice and, and this kind of thing. So um, so there's a lot of just very obvious stuff of like, you know, eliminating the distractions and, you know, for some people going out in nature and things like that. Um, <clears throat> but... But there are some tools like mediums and um, Ouija boards that you have to be very careful about. We
0: have a question in our chat room. It's actually several people have expressed the same concern. And you touched on it briefly when you talked about Ouija boards. But uh, the question basically is, if you're communicating with someone on the other side, how can you be sure it's the person you think it is and not something that may have a more nefarious uh, intent?
1: Okay, well, this is a great question, and I've been recently in talking about these relationships emphasizing the positive, but on my website, there's a, a, a category menu, and under that category, there's one of the categories is mind parasites, and you'll find all kinds of YouTubes and documents and all kinds of things about negative entities, uh, which is an extremely common thing. And um, indeed, people should be extremely careful. And there's also, they could also read something on my site called The Siren Call of Hungry Ghosts that tells the story of British paranormal researcher Joe Fisher, who was deceived by very high-seeming spirits. You know, he approached it skeptically, investigating the channeling phenomenon, and discovered that um, there were spirits or something paranormal um, that, that were being channeled through certain persons who had knew all kinds of things that could not be known through ordinary means, but they weren't who they said they were. Um, so just like how do you know, um, it's like somebody somebody would say like, okay, um, are relationships, talking about regular relationships, good or bad? Well, you'd have to say yes. They can be They can kill you or they can be the greatest experience of your life. When it comes to interdimensional relationships, all the same rules apply. Like if somebody says, well, how do I know if my boyfriend is who he says he is? Well, does he act consistently? Does he try and manipulate you? Does he try and compromise your free will? The higher class of spirits are non-intrusive. They don't try and take control over your life. They don't tell you what to do. It would be the same way of you know, uh, telling if you have a sketchy boyfriend or girlfriend. You know, If they're telling you what to do, all the time and not respecting your free will and they're intrusive and they don't respect boundaries those are all warning signs so um, you know you know, like when it comes to my friend you know he's so consistently himself he's not like you know doing anything harmful he doesn't take over my body like a possession um, and there was also so much before he died that that um, prefigured or prophesied, you know, this after-death relationship. But um, mostly with, like, the two, uh, you know, companions that I have, um, they're so consistently benign that, like, um, I, I'm not, and I'm a very suspicious kind of person, you know, who grew up in the Bronx and the worst time to me in that, you know, I've got, like, that, that spidey street sense. I'm always kind of looking around at where the threat is coming from. Um, but, um, you know, Use your your your. I don't like the word common sense, but you know, um, how how do you know that your um, your your close friend who's in a physical body is themselves and not an alien or a extremely advanced android who's taken over their form? Um, how can you tell that they're really the same person that you knew last Wednesday? Well, do they act like themselves? Is there, does their character seem consistently? Do they, you know, and, and so forth? <clears throat> same kind of, same kind of thing.
0: Right. We have um, um, actually not much time left with you, but I want to talk a little bit about, well, a lot about actually, as much as we can in the time we have left. Your book, Crossing the Event Horizon. What do people? What do you want people to walk away with if they buy and read the book?
1: Well, um, and they don't have to buy the book, by the way. I don't make any money at this. I actually spend much more money on this. <laughs> if they don't want to buy the book, they can see a free video I made. Um, it's two or three hours long called Looking Across the Event Horizon that covers a lot of the same ground, not in as much detail as the book, but with a lot more images. Um, but what I want them to come away from is um, the, the treasure trove of priceless information um, 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 encoded in a previously unrecognized archetype that I discovered when I was 20 years old in 1978 called the Singularity Archetype. And an archetype is not just a pattern. It's a living agency. It's kind of a living entity. um, And it it maps out and and also mediates our um, crossing the event horizon of death, which has a lot of very consistent themes. And um, also Um, throws back images through artwork like science fiction stories and visions and so forth um, the nature of a future quantum evolutionary horizon and those two closely parallel the individual event horizon of death and the future evolution of the species because just like with a hologram or a fractal the small part recapitulates the whole. Everything that in a futuristic sci-fi story that's a true vision of the singularity archetype, like the movie 2001, A Space Odyssey, um, would see happening in the future of the species is a phenomenological actuality in near-death experience. So people um, seeing that will know how to live a better life, how to be aware of the things that they need to be aware of in order to successfully and in a healthy way Across the event horizon that is absolutely um, guaranteed of personal death whether we get to a evolutionary uh, species-wide event horizon before your individual death occurs or not um, um, you're definitely guaranteed an escape hatch and an event horizon out of the meat-bodied existence and it's important to know the nature of what happens.
0: Can people have a relationship as you have a relationship with your friend can people have a relationship and not be aware of it? In other words, you know, both of my parents are deceased. Can they be guiding me and I'm not aware of it or helping me or communicating with me, but I don't sense it on a conscious level?
1: Absolutely. I mean, and this is widely reported across periods and cultures and for good or bad. So there's a lot of dark spirit intrusion where somebody who's an addict, you know, maybe you're somebody's an alcoholic, but a spirit that died of alcoholism but that's still addicted to that substance may be like sidling up to you at the bar and egging you on and you're not aware of it. And this is, you know, um, you know, a whole branch of medicine in, 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 in Chinese medicine and Ayurveda, the traditional medicine of India, the effect of like these kind of uh, intrusive and parasitic entities. And also um, there are so many reports of people Um, Being saved from traffic accidents and in survival situations by the sudden reappearance of a deceased parent telling them, you know, okay, stop the car, you know, don't go to the next intersection, and then there's a huge accident up ahead of them and that kind of thing. But that's a conscious one. Unconsciously, you know, what spirits will say to mediums and stuff is like, you know, I visited her 10 times in her dreams, but she never remembers so they may, you know, you may have a sudden insight or intuition that's helpful and not realize the source of it. But because this is a very high-class benevolent spirit, they don't have to, um, they're not egoistic. They don't have to get credit for it. They're only just too glad to, like, you know, give you, help you have the inspiration and that kind of thing. So absolutely, um, you know, just like you can have, you know, somebody who is an, anom- an, an, an anonymous, pass-it-forward benefactor, who, like, you know, anonymously gives you money or anonymously assists your career or your life path, you can have um, there's a class of spirits who, for good or bad, um, may um, have a powerful influence on you without your consciously being aware of it.
0: Jonathan, we're almost out of time. I've got a couple rather important questions. One of them is there's a picture that I'm using on our YouTube stream of you with a tiger. What is that about?
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay. A lot of people have gotten mad at me and said, like, you're exploiting animals or something. I was a volunteer um, on that particular day and also a, a paid fundraiser for the Prairie Wind Animal Refuge. It was a refuge for big cats. These were not cats that, like, we took into captivity. These were cats that were, like, mostly big cats or other animals, too, that had been... Um, uh, that were part of guaranteed hunts, if you know what those are. Yeah, mm-hmm. largely in Texas, it's mm-hmm. a horrible thing. And so these are like rescue animals. And that particular was an adolescent Bengal tiger who had been living with his trainer for like 24 hours a day, you know, since he was born practically, and and was so tame that you know we could sit on his back and stuff like that or ride around. He was also being given drinks of milk from a baby bottle, so he was very content. I would not recommend that practice anymore. In fact, that same Wind Animal Refuge had uh, two tragic incidences with the same tiger, a different tiger, who was not well adapted to captivity. Um, But that's what that was. It was a a non-profit animal refuge that I worked for for some years.
0: And one other question I have, because I have a personal interest in it, on your website, one of your pictures shows you with um, sitting, at, I don't know, a desk or something, and behind you, there's a couple of real-to-real tape decks. You don't see them very often anymore. I've got a almost a room full of real-to-real tape decks because I've been buying them, trying to find one that works. Um, what's with the real-to-real decks?
1: <laughs> well, um, I think I've got three of them in my study and like three of them in my my basement. Um, I grew up with real-to-real tape recorders, but my my study and everything is sort of like a steampunk. Uh, interdimensional lab mad scientist lab so i just love the way they look yeah um um i need to find out if any of them work too because i have some a bunch of old reel-to-reel tapes mm-hmm. that i would like to play um but i haven't i haven't bothered to figure out uh, maybe one of them that might work
0: well uh, my father where like they look yeah my father who passed in 2014 had a, a, an extensive library of reel-to-reel tapes that. Uh, many of them were just, you know, duplicated music, uh, but others were things that, you know, music that he wrote or it was comedy skits that he and his friends would do uh, when they were over uh, having a little party at the house. And and he's got seven or eight of these reel-to-reel decks and not one of them works. And it's been a real frustration for me. And I found one that worked that I borrowed from somebody. I started uh, dubbing one of these tapes to a digital recorder. And uh, as I'm dubbing the tape, the m- magnetic part of the tape is falling, crumbling off. So wow. it was the last opportunity I had. What, that that, happen, that tape was actually quite important, and it was the last opportunity I had to save it. So now I'm afraid to use any of the other ones until I'm absolutely certain the deck is going to work because... If it doesn't, I'll, I'll probably lose what's and on it, may, it forever. and it may
1: be your one chance. Yeah, I've, I've been through that. I just discovered yeah. that floppy disks I made in like the nineties are now completely blank, apparently. Oh, really? Um, yeah, I mean, at least at least according to the the floppy, brand new floppy drive um, nice. that I got. Um, but I do have cassette tapes that I made in the early seventies. I have like tape journals. At, you oh, know, wow. this is like a time machine of like myself talking when I was fifteen years old. Is the earliest one, and that's just a, a priceless treasure. And I have copied that. Um, the problem with the old reel-to-reels, same problem with all the 16-millimeter movie projectors I inherited from my dad is a lot of them have like rubber belts, yep. and rubber parts. They dry out. Dry out and don't yep. age very well. Yep. Um, so I'm kind of in the same boat you are. Um, I've got a giant transcription project I need to do of 16-millimeter movies, cassette tapes, and reel-to-reels, cassette Working cassette tapes are easy to find, but the old reel-to-reels and movie projectors and stuff like that, those are very hard because they don't make too many of them anymore, and they all have rubber parts that dry out.
0: And they are heavy as all get-out in general. They're, oh, I know.
1: Which I love. I love <laughs> massive objects like they're, that. They're hard
0: to ship. But anyway, uh, Jonathan, fantastic discussion. Very, very interesting. Uh, let folks know your, uh, your, where your website is and what they can find and what they can follow.
1: And fantastic pointed questions, by the way. So it was definitely a very two-way thing that we had a good result, I think. Yes, thank you. Uh, My website is zaporacle, Z-A-P, and the word oracle.com. There's a free Oracle on there with 664 cards, a free membership, saves your readings indefinitely. It has unique functions that no other Oracle has, and there are all kinds of documents on there. My YouTube channel is also called Zap Oracle.
0: Terrific, and hopefully we'll get you back on the show before too long because I think there's a lot more we could be talking about. Absolutely.